It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Office Hours, where we sit down with the chief executives shaping the world and answer your most pressing questions about leadership, careers, and life. I'm Mike Stibe, and today we are with my very good friend, David Rosenblatt. David is CEO of First Dibs, a marketplace for the world's most beautiful things, including antiques, furniture, jewelry, art, and more. Previously, he was CEO of DoubleClick, and he orchestrated its $3.1 billion sale to Google in 2008. He sits on the boards of IAC and Farfetch. He is a pillar of the New York tech community, and he's my occasional tennis partner. David, I've been looking forward to this. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Mike. Likewise, happy to be here. So what everyone should know is when I was thinking about um, coming to Artsy, uh, the company I currently lead, it's a company that has a lot in common with David's company, First Dibs. And David, you were the first person I came to see to ask for advice. You said, do it. I did it. I've had a blast for four years. So you're not only my friend, I owe you a lot of gratitude for the advice. Uh, I'm flattered. A bunch of other folks have called in (laughs) who want your advice today, too. So we've got questions on luxury marketplaces, New York tech, your career journey. So if it's all right with you, we'll just uh, we'll get right into it. Okay. All right. First one is a call we got from Emily in Dallas, Texas, who says, You each came from outside of art and luxury to run the leading marketplaces in your industries. How did you find your way to these roles? My career arc was has been relatively straightforward. I uh, did a tour of duty. First of all, I majored in East Asian studies and Chinese language. So not very helpful for a commercial career. (laughs) That's good. Uh, So not very helpful for a commercial career here in the U.S. Um, But I spent a couple of years in Asia after I graduated. I did a tour of duty on Wall Street in investment banking. Decided I was neither very good nor very excited about it. My, We've heard that a lot on the show. Is that right? Yeah, there have been a lot of career journeys that started in Wall Street consulting or MBA yeah, sort of yeah, type stuff. Yeah, I wonder how much of that reflects the fact that we're sitting here in New York City. It's, it's yeah, sort of there's a some, logical so, there's starting some point. selection bias. Yeah. Uh, 
And, you know, my, my honorable discharge from investment banking was to go to business school. And I happened to be at Stanford exactly at the sort of inception point or ground zero of the commercial web. And, you know, along with many other people, I kind of got the bug and, uh, and wanted to focus after I graduated on early stage tech companies. So I moved to New York, which was probably not the smartest way to approach a career in early stage tech. But I did it because my now wife, then girlfriend, was here, and also because I, I wanted to live here, and right. I lived all over the world, and you know I was excited uh, by the by the city streets here. So I came. I connected very quickly with Kevin O'Connor, who had previously, who had, had recently founded for uh, DoubleClick, and um, he brought me on board as as one of the early product managers. And to cut a long story short, it was a real roller coaster of an experience. Sure. You know, when I joined, we were doing double click was inventing internet. Yeah, we basically created display the display advertising industry online. That's right. And you know, it was it was thrilling and exciting. Everything we did became sort of the you know definitional to the industry that we were operating in. Um, it was also a real roller coaster. I mean, when I started, we were very small. We went public in 1998. By 2000, we had a market cap of $15 billion. A couple of years later, we had a negative enterprise value, meaning our the value of the company was significantly less than the amount of cash that we had, meaning investors- What year was that? That was probably sort of 02, Right after the bust. Yeah, yeah, right after the bust. Um, but I stuck with it, and um, you know we did have the benefit at that point of having a lot of cash. We used that cash in retrospect to do the opposite of what we should have done. What we should have done is retain confidence in our market and double down on the display advertising sure. industry. Instead, what we did is we took that cash and we diversified into related industries where we thought the things that we were good at by virtue of having done display advertising would, you know, would, would apply. Um, and that turned out not to be a great idea because what happened was the display advertising, contrary to most kind of projections of a few years earlier, did come back. Right. But we didn't come back with it because by that point, we were no longer the sort of you know, proxy on that industry that we had been going into the market correction. And so what we did is we uh, decided, the board decided to take the company private and we ran an auction um, and ultimately did take the company private with Hellman and Friedman. I became CEO in conjunction with that take private deal. And essentially what we did over the following four years is we reversed the diversification process that we had undertaken previously double down on display advertising. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and that that ended up working. And so I sold the company in 2008, as you mentioned, to Google, um, spent a year at Google kind of helping with the integration uh, and the adoption of- I believe the, that's called resting investing. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to be productive, not always, not always successfully, as you know, from having been there at the time. Uh, and and so uh, a year after that, I left and joined a few boards, one of which was Twitter. Through Twitter, I met Benchmark. Benchmark had been an early investor in Twitter. Right. A couple of years after that, they invested in First Dibs. And, you know, I got the call from, from them to see if I was interested. What was appealing to me about First Dibs was the same thing that appealed to me about DoubleClick, which was even though it was a completely different industry – 
both companies were kind of reinventing what had been a very old industry for a digital age. Mei Ling, who is in San Francisco, texted this one into me. She said, how has tech changed luxury buying and what about building a luxury marketplace is different than other marketplaces? Listen, the, the text changed it a lot. Yeah, well, you can now buy I mean, luxury online, so in one way, it's changed it quite a bit. Well, I mean, listen, the the, the internet changes everything it touches, right? Uh, I mean, I, listen, the the degree of difficulty, as you know, Mike, uh, you know, of running a luxury business online, and particularly one in the in the sort of in the arts, broadly speaking, yeah, the arts industry, yeah, yeah. the degree of difficulty is is higher than any other company I've it ever is. been around. You're dealing on the with internet. unique objects. You're so dealing with unique if objects. If you need an Uber, you need a one of a kind objects. Versus, you know, exactly. the, the sale of those objects requires trust, which is mm -hmm. hard to achieve online. Um, the sale is very complex, both logistically and also kind yeah. of psychologically. It's highly fragmented because. You know, the item that a given buyer is in the market for might be 8,000 miles away or it might be That's right. 800 yards away, right? And one doesn't know going into it. And again, the order itself is very complicated, right? Shipping is complicated. Insurance is complicated. Crossing borders is always complicated. Um, the communication required between buyers Right, because it's a longer is, consideration it, exactly. sometimes. Exactly. It's process. not like buying a razor, right? Yeah. I think in our case, the kind of initial value that we created for buyers was simply aggregating all of, of the sort of relevant um, pieces in one place on one website. Um, you know, the, and, and I remember, by the way, just sort of back to the, to the, the sort of the difficulty, the degree of difficulty question. I remember when I was doing my own diligence on first dibs. One of the, um, you know, one of the moments that the difference between this market and every other market I'd ever been exposed to was sort of made concrete to me was I interviewed, I don't know, nine or 10 sellers on first dibs to understand kind of how they thought about the company mm -hmm. and the market and their business. And one of the really simple question I, questions I asked them was, what do you do when a piece of yours doesn't sell? And you know what almost all of them said? raise the price. Oh. <laughs> and it's sort of the, the light bulb went off. Like, this is a different thing. You know, That's a different like, kind yeah, of thing. It's a different kind of thing. Well, in, in, in art, the, I mean, if you buy a 36 by 48 painting, the raw materials probably cost $30, right? But, yeah. it, but it's the work of the artist that made it a value that could be tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars in, in value. So it's, you're buying... You're buying aesthetic and cultural appreciation, and you're buying you're buying Provenance. a tiny you're, and you're buying a tiny slice yep. of our of our culture, and it's right. that is very different than booking a room in Miami and a flight. It's very very different than what it's you do true. in other marketplaces. And, you know, I I do consider First Dibs to be a, a mission driven company. I think you know part of the the mission that motivates me, and I think many of our employees, is what you say, which is. You know, unless companies like First Dibs and like Artsy succeed and scale, then, you know, the market for a lot of what defines our culture disappears. Suffers. And, you know. And the people who sell these objects, whether they run art galleries or whether they are an antiques dealer, they're very special people. They follow their heart and do a thing that they love. And the business of selling art is not easy. Business of being an antiques dealer is not easy. When we can bring more demand to those 
entrepreneurs and help their artists succeed, it's it's really rewarding. And it's and to your point, it's really important. That's right. So in addition to all the challenges that are specific to working in the arts and, and, and kind of running an arts business as a commercial entity, you know, they're also small businesses. And it's difficult for them to do things like, for example, figure out how to work with Google and search engines, figure out how to ship cross-border, right? right? I mean, all of those sort of how, things. How many that, dealers could create their own app? Yeah, and be Part exactly, of the app ecosystem exactly. and all of that stuff. Exactly. So you touched on something in the intro about you followed your, uh, you followed your heart to New York and you ended up being a, an important part of the New York tech community. Connor in New York City asked, the New York tech scene has boomed over the last 20 years and first dibs and artsy are two leading examples of New York-founded companies. How is starting and running a tech company in New York different than Silicon Valley or other places? Yeah, so it's been a So quarter. you came here for the love, you stayed for the tech. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> stayed for the food. And by the way, I mean, I, same situation yeah. for, for me. My wife is an investment banker, and that means that's a New York job. And, and so, you know, we're not the first people on this podcast to say we sort of are in our city because we we did it for for love, and then and then you you wrap your career around it. Yeah, it's true. I think you know what's interesting, and and I've been at it for a quarter century uh, in New York tech. So, you know, the, I, I in in a funny kind of way, the challenges um, between New York or the sort of difference between running a tech business in the Valley versus New York um, are almost sort of uh, inverted in the sense that, um, you know, early on when we were scaling DoubleClick, the biggest challenge was just finding engineers and also separately right. finding non-engineers who understood what it was like to work in a, in a kind of tech-driven business. Um, and we, of course, had no shortage of people that kind of knew the industry that we operated in. You know, the valley was the opposite, right? There were, you know, great engineers growing on trees. There were very few people who who, mm -hmm. uh, who had experience with the underlying industries. And, you know, I think the, the two kind of coasts have converged in that sense, right? There are now plenty of engineers here, and there are now many more people that understand kind of non-tech industries right, right. in the valley. Um, and so in that sense, actually, the difference between the two is much, much smaller today than it was before. Those that remain really have to do with just scale, right? I mean, yes, there's venture capital in New York. There's a lot more of it out there. Yes, you know, there's a, there's a, yep. there is a developer community here. It's much bigger out That's there. Right. And, and I so think the I, numbers are like it's roughly 30% now of sort of U.S. venture starts in Silicon Valley. And like twelve or thirteen percent is New York City, so yeah, they're there closer, they're yeah. closer, but still, still closer, but bigger. still, still different. In One of the things I found different—I don't know if you have as well—but if you're, especially by, you know, from our friends who who live in the Valley, it's if you go to the soccer game, you're at drop off for your kids. All of the talk is tech. It is definitely a tech town. I remember our kids; each of our kids are teenagers now. But I remember when we were applying my son for preschool, and they asked where I worked, and I said I worked at Google. And one of the ladies in admissions at the school gave me her phone and asked me to ask me to fix it because they just hadn't met someone in tech right. during the entire process <laughs> of meeting the parents of the incoming preschool class. Yeah. So New York, you have diversity in New York. And for companies like ours, which are these sort of culturally rich marketplaces, being adjacent to New York City culture, I think is a huge advantage. Huge advantage. Yeah, I don't think this. I don't think either of our companies could operate successfully from 
you know, a San Francisco, um, potentially in LA. Especially in the early stages of it. Especially, especially in the early stages. stages. Yeah. I think that's right. Um, by the way, if I had a dollar for the number of times people asked me to fix their computers, you know, in the, in the early days, once they learned I worked on, you know, at a tech company, right? I mean, similar experience. I think we all had that. All right. <laughs> AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. The next one is from Rajesh, in, also in New York City. He asked, uh, online advertising has grown to hundreds of billions of dollars a year and is the business model of countless internet companies. DoubleClick and Google were the pioneers in the space. Can you talk about the evolution of advertising and what lessons you see for other newer internet industries? 
Yeah, I think, you know, the, the big change in the digital, at least the display ad industry, was the shift from a kind of what I guess you could call a kind of cut and paste application of the historical ad model to the internet, meaning, you know, there were publishers, publishers hired sales forces, sales yeah. forces went out and sold ads to agencies. Sold them to ad agencies right? who represented yes, the customer. Yes, it took a little yeah. bit more technology, but kind of basically it was the same thing. The big change in the industry was the evolution from that in favor of ad exchanges mm -hmm. and aggregators, so very large ad networks, ad exchanges like Google's and DoubleClick's and so on, that had the impact of divorcing audience from context, right? Meaning, if you wanted to buy an in access to an in-market car drive, you know, uh, auto buyer, Previous to that, you bought car and driver. Whether you bought right. the print or you bought digital, it didn't mm -hmm. really matter. You know, once the ad exchanges and aggregators emerged, those two things could be separated. Yeah. And you could buy an in-market auto buyer irrespective of where he or she is, right? Um, and that led to all sorts of arbitrage models and, you know, things like that. So that sort of, you know, that what was in, you know, the reason I mentioned that is that is a, um, I think every industry waits for its moment where it is reinvented, employing kind of attributes or technologies that only the internet has that's mm -hmm. unique to digital mm -hmm. that doesn't exist offline. To some degree, you know, I think first dibs, uh, at least in our industry, has created a version of that, right? Simply by aggregating all the inventory in our market that otherwise had been super fragmented, and then also making it possible to buy that product online and receive some of the benefits of online of e-commerce, right? Of being right. able to talk to the to many sellers at the same time and mm -hmm. all in one place and compare prices and you know arrange shipping uh, and so on. Um, and to do all that without having to pick up the phone and talk to somebody, which, you know, a lot of people don't like, you know, but at the same time, I don't think we're a hundred percent of the way there yet. It feels like there's another kind of chapter in this and, you know, part of what is sort of, you know, helps me remain very excited and engaged about working in this industry is that I don't quite feel that we're a hundred percent of the way there yet. Sure. Um, even though we've made a lot of progress. An interesting thing that happened in internet advertising is, according to the Department of Justice, Google won. And the, and the DoubleClick being a part of Google is a, is a big part of how they're looking now at, at, at Google having won the space. Do you think, is that pattern going to be repeated as we look at sort of what comes next and what comes next? So, sort of one of the things everyone's saying is that the, the, the Adobe of the AI world, for example, is going to be Adobe that a lot of the technologies that are emerging now are going to benefit more than anyone else the biggest players in the space. Do you get, do you get that sense? I, I do think that will happen uh, primarily because, you know, what the internet is good at is connecting fragmented sort of nodes in an industry, right? Mm -hmm. Sellers, buyers, what, whatever. And, you know, that, that creates a network effect. And net, in, network effect industries favor scale players, right? right? And so it's not just the case that the bigger a company gets, you know, the sort of more powerful they become, but the bigger they get, the better the experience for sellers and buyers, right. which of course leads to even more scale. And it's this sort of 
depending on how you think about it, either a vicious or a virtuous cycle, right. which ultimately culminates in the largest companies being the most powerful and actually having the best products and services. And so I don't think I'm saying anything that's, you know, uh, pathbreaking necessarily, but I, I, I don't see why that pattern wouldn't repeat itself in almost every industry online. Right. You For know. years, Reed Hastings was saying we have to become HBO faster than HBO can become Netflix. Yeah. Bingo. Right? Exactly. Right. They did. Good job, guys. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but now that's become sort of part of the received wisdom of running a tech company. And exactly. I think it's going to be harder to be a disruptor for that reason. Yeah. All right. The next one is from uh, Malik in Detroit. David, you sat on the Twitter board during its most formative years. What do you think of all the changes at Twitter? Presumably your NDAs have all burned off and everything. You can tell us yeah, how you really feel. I mean, listen, I, I, they, they have. <laughs> I mean, I, I will say this. I'm not as close to it anymore just because i haven't been involved sure. since since the change of control and uh, and no and people barely talk about it in the news i mean I, you probably haven't even heard what's up it's true yeah <laughs> uh, i don't read the news just kidding <laughs> I, I mean listen i think you know there there are a lot of different ways to think about that company and the impact of new ownership on it from my perspective one of the questions that i think is is among the most interesting, which is sort of a commercial kind of geeky uh, tech one. Is you know one of the one of the the attributes of Twitter that was always the most compelling from my perspective was its network effect. Right, the right. fact that it had aggregated you know it, all, all of the these content providers offered them a unique way to publish their content and a unique way for consumers of the content to understand it and read it. Uh, and the sort of interaction of those two things created a network effect, which is part of the reason why you know, there, there is no real and has been no real competition to Twitter. Some of the changes that the current management are making, you know, I would think might undo some of that network effect. Charging right? for a check mark. So charging for the, the check mark is, is, is the biggest thing. one, right? So, you know, uh, so the question for me that I'm most interested in uh, or as interested in, in as, as all the others, but which I haven't really heard anyone talk about is what's more powerful, the network effect that Twitter brings into this, mm -hmm. you know, by virtue of having been around for 17 years or so, you know, or um, the, the sort of negative impact on the network effect of some of these changes that the current management is sure. making, like, you know, making the blue check mark available for sale. So far, the network effect is winning. Right. So in spite of all right. of the changes, so not just right. the blue check mark, but also the relaxation of a lot of the content moderation investment, um, you know, the seemingly the seeming favoring of, you know, some some tweeters over others and so on. None of that has undone the network effect. So that's what I'm going to be looking at over the next couple of years. And one of those things that I one of the aspects of this that I think is underserved, but but kind of fascinating. Next to a really good one from Alejandra in Albuquerque, New Mexico. You both led multiple companies. What is one way in which your leadership approach has changed the most? What is your advice to new leaders? You Listen, drive a truck I mean, through that one. That's a know, good question. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's a good, it is a good question. Look, necessarily, you know, I do my job differently. I'm sure you do yours differently at age 55 than I did at age 36, which is how old I was when I became CEO of DoubleClick. 
I have more things in my life, you know, both personal and professional. And it's my hope that First Dibs benefits is it sort of comes out positive on that trade, right? Like I can't, I don't have the ability as I did when I was 36 to put every single waking minute of my life. Well, could into we the at business? 26 possibly have had time to sit on two boards? That would have been unthinkable. I, well, I didn't have time I would, to do no my expenses. Yeah, well, nobody exactly. would have cared, but and, there was, and, we, and didn't also, have the would have been, we didn't have the minutes. Yeah. And, and also it would have been hard. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, on one hand, it just, at, at, you know, at my advanced age, you know, it's, it's, it's just hard to put, to, to sort of make any one company a hundred percent of your time, my time. And my hope is that the company benefits from the pattern recognition I have and the experience that I have. The broader network. And that those, all yeah, sure. network and all that, 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 that the benefits of that outweigh the fact that, um, you know, I'm not able to spend as I did at, at DoubleClick at age 36, every single waking minute on, on the company. I've come to appreciate over the last 10 or 15 years, how much my job is getting everyone on the team to cooperate as effectively as possible. I think everywhere I've worked, as long as I can remember now, we've read the um, Patrick Lencioni's five dysfunctions of a team. I'm sure you guys, David's nodding here on the podcast is a book everyone should read. But one of the core principles of it is everyone on the team is part of that's their first team. Like your executive team is one team that runs the company rather than a group of people who run silos. And I, I have seen in my career, a lot of teams where the leader thinks of the direct reports as sort of extensions of his or her greatness, rather than the team as a unit that the CEO or the general manager helps to cooperate. And that is, uh, it's something I'm, it is a constant area of development, I think, for every leader, but that is definitely what's changed for me over the long arc of my career is realizing that that's my role. My role is to be the, my the, role is to conductor. get the best, uh, yeah, I'm the conductor. My role is to get yeah. the best out of that team. Right. You don't make the music. You are the conductor. It's you need to have the best cellist and the best violinist. And your job is to get them not just to make sure that the company has the best yeah. of each, but that they they obviously make beautiful music together. Yeah. <laughs> you, you nailed the metaphor. You may have named the episode. I think we've got it. I think we've got it down. Hi there. I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of MoviePhone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more.
Hello, from Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. This month, we're bringing you the stories of disappearing acts. There's the 17th century fraudster who convinced men she was a German princess. The 1950s folk singer who literally drove off into the sunset and was never heard from again. The First Nations activist whose kidnapping and murder ignited decades of discourse about indigenous women's disappearances. And the young daughter of a Russian czar whose legendary escape led to even more intrigue and speculation. These stories make us consider what it means to disappear and why a woman might even want to make herself scarce. Listen to Amanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, it's the last one. So from you and I have talked about this casually a number of times. I think every person with a with a knowledge worker job is talking about this these days. So Fatima in Jersey City uh, texted this one into us. She said in a recent resume builder survey, 75% of companies said that they are mandating some form of in-office work in 2024. What are your views on remote work and how have those views evolved? So look, my own personal view of remote work is that I hate it. You For hate me- it. You hate doing it? I, I, I hate, I hate, I hate work personally. I don't like working remotely. Right. And so you're an extrovert. You I don't to think be it's good people. for companies for employees to work remotely. No. I mean, you know, part of the, of what makes uh, any group special, whether it's a team or a class or a company, is the con. It results from the connectivity that's created by people working together. And you know, the better you know people, and um, you know, the more sort of intimate that connectivity is, the better the output. Yeah. There's no question about it. On the other hand, uh, you know, th- I have to recognize that's not the world we live in anymore. Right. I, I think it's, I, I think it's, you know, regardless of all of the, the sort of movement in favor of back to work, my own point of view is that we're at the beginning of a very long process of fragmentation where because of technology primarily and the lack of friction and the ability of people to work together, even if it's not ideal, um, and for companies to find the best available talent anywhere, I, I think that we're we're sort of what's the opposite? What what is is it centripetal or centrifugal? There's like this sort of force, right? That we're all a part of. It's like the expanding universe uh, is a sort of you know image that's always in my mind. And so I think that's the world we live in. And I just think because of that, we have to figure it out. I'm a little surprised that the technology has been so slow to evolve. I mean, still. I think we've gotten two new features on Zoom yeah, in like exactly, three years. Right, exactly. And no, exactly. And so no new product in Zoom itself hasn't changed that much. And Well, but this is to your earlier point on the network effects, because everybody else I talked to externally has Zoom already installed. So to show up with the new startup it's too hard. Video conferencing right. software is a pain. Exactly. A pain. Yeah. I, you know, it's, you, you know, Teams, Microsoft, you think would do more. Google would do more. I, you know, I don't, again, I, I don't, I, I'm not, I'm not smart enough to know what the answer is, but I am surprised that none of these, there isn't, none of these platforms has been able to really change the way we work remotely. Yeah. I think it'll happen. I think that technology will catch up. 
I think our role as managers is to kind of supply the non-technology parts to this and figure out how do we achieve connectivity um, to complement the technology that likely will emerge over time, even if it hasn't yet. So the bottom line is, I don't like it. I think it erodes what makes companies special and, you know, what provides a lot of the sort of fun and joy in life, even for those of us who aren't extroverts. Um, but at the same time, it's the world we live in. I don't think we're going back to the old one. And so we got to figure it out. Yeah. And for our company, we're, um, Archie is a global company and we have business partners in every time zone and we have people in many time zones. And so already we had to deal with the challenge of being in separate locations. And in hindsight, we didn't deal with it very well. We would, I would stand up and do an all hands in New York and half the company was there in the room. And the other half of the company was watching on a little window where they didn't, they felt like they were not a part of it. And so now we've augmented our practices so that we do, we largely come into the office half the time, I'd say for sort of most of the company, the large percent of the company, half the time, some of the company all the time. It's just, it's a mix. But even when we're in, we do a better job with hybrid or remote practices so that everybody feels included. And I think yeah, that's been an that's, upside of this look, transition. That, that's important. I, and there, there are many, you know, there are many upsides, right? I mean, f finding great talent and allowing that talent to express itself and realize its potential wherever they are is really powerful, right? Mm -hmm. And so there are many benefits to remote work. But at the same time, I, what I miss the most is the sort of serendipitous or unplanned conversations. Yep. Right. And just, you know, yes, we, you know, you can invite whoever you want to a meeting. The meeting can be run efficiently and well. Tools will, will evolve to improve, you know, feelings of inclusiveness and the ability to communicate and so on. But what you miss is, you know, the meeting's over and somebody walks in early for their next meeting and you talk to somebody you wouldn't have talked to otherwise, right? right? And so if you don't plan it, it doesn't happen in this world. And I think we lose a lot from that. I'm now stacking up my calendar for the in-person certain days a week and then the video conferences certain days a week. And it's, it's starting to click in, but who could have imagined five years ago? Yeah, I will say one here. other thing on this, which is the part of all this that is most amazing to me is that you know, whatever it was on, you know, March 9th, 10th, 11th of 2020, you know, there's no way that anyone could have imagined, uh, you know, the, the world that we're in today. And yet it happened overnight. And now that we're in it, it's difficult to remember what it was like before. It's just the sort of adaptivity and the plasticity of the human mind is really just kind of awesome. Yeah. Whatever and we do now, that's what we do. Yeah, exactly. And it's sort of like you assimilate to this new reality. And then again, not only is it impossible to imagine going back to the old one, but it's hard for many of us to even remember what it was like. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so what will be that thing in five years? So tune back in. We'll, 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 we'll know soon enough. We'll know soon enough. David, this was super fun. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for yeah, coming in and great. sharing your wisdom. And it's always a pleasure to see you, man. Likewise. Thanks for having me. Well, my friends, today we talked with someone who's been a pioneer in multiple industries and with, with tremendous success. And one of the things that I really appreciate about David is how interesting and interested, how curious he is across disciplines and across industries. And because David, I think, has, has worked across 
a number of different formats. He brings that energy of, he brings that approach of asking first principles questions about the business that he's building and about the industry he's trying to improve. And anytime we've talked to an interesting entrepreneur, uh, a successful executive on this podcast who's done big things in her or his career, it's been by looking at their business, at their industry, at the needs of their consumers from a different angle, from an angle of first principles, rather than saying, how do we usually do it here? Can I do it just a little bit better? As you go about your week this week, I'd encourage you to look for the opportunities to take a first principles approach to your problems, to take a first principles approach to better serving your customers, to being a better teammate, to scaling up your business, Assume that there's a different and a better way. And the more curious you are in more aspects of your vertical, but also others, the better job you'll do. That's it, gang. We've got some amazing guests coming up in the next few weeks, uh, including a CEO who's helping to cure cancer. Text or call in your questions at 213-419-0596 or just hit me up on LinkedIn, Instagram, etc. at Mike Steib. I want to thank David. And of course, Jen, Meg, Jada, Matt, and the whole team at Blue Duck Media for pulling this all together. Dylan and Sasha Gay and Nathan and Christine at iHeart, Ben and the team at William Morris Endeavor for all their support, and of course, Bahid here in the studio on the ones and twos. Office Hours is a production of Blue Duck Media and distributed by iHeart Radio. Thanks for tuning in again this week, everybody. Make sure you stay on your grind. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilbur Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.